and learning together. And uh, I would be amiss uh, to not uh, acknowledge, um, to not acknowledge the pain of what's going on in Israel right now, um, the amount of fear and uh, loss and conflict, um, and just wishing blessings for peace and stability and security and, um, and, and the loss of life. Um, and uh, hopefully better things to come in the coming days as things continue to heat up. So um, with them on our mind, we, we now turn back from this world to the next world and, and, and reflecting on Jewish eschatology, reflecting on the immortality of the soul, reflecting on uh, traditional sources. Let's start with a poll to see who's in the room today a little poll question um, to understand some of our perspectives before we jump in. Do you believe in experiencing the presence of the deceased? Number one, when you're gone, you're gone. Number two, I find it interesting, but I don't think so. Number three, I don't know. Number four, I have in some vague sense felt the presence of loved ones. Oh, we lost, we lost that one. I have, we lost that poll question, sorry. I have in some vague sense felt the presence of, lost, of loved ones who have passed. Or lastly, I have had deep experiences of encounters and conversations with loved ones who have passed. So if you wanna cast your vote there on what best aligns with your belief or experience, we'll give you a few seconds. Okay, and let's see the results there. Okay, so nobody in the room says when you're gone, you're gone. 6% say, I find it interesting, but I don't think so. 0% say, I don't know. 44% I have in some vague sense felt the presence of loved ones who passed. And half of those in the room, I have had deep experiences of encounters and conversations with loved ones who have passed. Okay, very interesting, very interesting. Thank you so much. So friends, what we're gonna do today is build off last session. What we tried to do last session was show a little bit about how dominant the Hollywood view is of theology and how much film and art has influenced the way we experience what might be coming next. 
When we talk about next, we are talking about the death of the body, and yet there is an immaterial dimension of the self, in a mortal dimension of the self, call it consciousness, call it the soul, call it a dimension of mind that goes beyond mere hormones, beyond the synaptical neural experience that continues to, you might even say naturally, if not supernaturally, exists when the body no longer operates. This does not have to be viewed as a leap of faith into the irrational, but if anyone has had any experience of the self that transcends the bodily, we can understand that why would that dimension of self um, uh, die when the body dimension of the self would die? And so there's an aspect of this, which is dualism. There is the body and there is the spirit. But even in the monistic belief that they're not separate realms, body and soul, but they are overlapping realms of body and soul, that there is a detachment process that emerges when the body dies. Let's start with a short video clip from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who died all too young this past year, um, and his two-minute view when he is asked, what's the Jewish view of the afterlife? What would he say in two minutes? Jews believe about the afterlife that it's going to be wonderful, but please don't let's have it yet. That is the really important thing about Judaism. Read through the whole of Tanakh, the whole of the Hebrew Bible from beginning to end, and you will find that the references to the afterlife are, are almost infinitesimally small. The references are there, but you have, really have to search for them. Judaism is an extraordinarily this-worldly, this-life-focused religion. And that's extraordinary because all the religions of the ancient world were religions obsessed with the afterlife. That's what the great temples and pyramids of Egypt are all about. This life is a place of struggle and pain and all sorts of, uh, all sorts of agonies. It's when you die and you go to heaven, then you find serenity. Now, Judaism does not deny that, but it does say if justice is to be done, it's to be done down here on earth. If we are to come close to God, if we are to really grow as human beings, if we're going to make a difference to the world, then let's do it here, here and now, not in some other world, in some other life. So Judaism believes that the afterlife is the place where souls, after the body uh, reaches the end of its biological existence, are reunited with God. It's a kind of homecoming of the soul. The righteous sit and are illuminated by the rays of the divine presence. But Judaism remains a religion which, despite its belief in the afterlife, is almost obsessively focused on this life. And that, to me, makes Judaism the healthiest and most uh, life-affirming. Okay, so he ends his line there saying Judaism is the most, um, most life-affirming of religions. Um, and that is it affirming of this life rather than denying of this life or denying of, of, of this world. Um, and so, uh, and so Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, 
you're emphasizes both these, these dimensions that the Jewish tradition is so clear there's an olam haba, a next life, and it is this worldly focused. Now, there's a few different ways to approach the questions of what's next. The most obvious Jewish way, which we're gonna embark on together, is to look at Jewish uh, texts and sources throughout the eras. However, there are those who want more proofs or more, or more experiences or realities from our own day. And there's a growing interest in this sense of people who have quote unquote died and come back. Many of you may have seen these videos or read these books. To give you an example of what such people claim, here is a quintessential uh, video um, we're only going to watch the first four minutes and 15 seconds of it. And this will be the last video we're going to watch today. Four minutes and 15 seconds of one person who claims to have died and come back. And um, I'm not here to convince anyone that this is, a, this is either real or that this is a hoax, only to demonstrate that there is a large influence of people who are sharing such ideas, predominantly Christians, but not exclusively. And then we will ask the question, does such an idea exist in Jewish thought as well? So uh, check out this story for the next four minutes. Jews when they die, but you're about to meet a man who died, went to heaven, talked to God, then got to choose whether or not he wanted to stay there. Shannon Woodland has his remarkable story. Where? Jim Anderson was dying from a massive heart attack. The only signs of trouble came a year earlier, but his doctor called the symptoms stress-related. Jim was working 12-hour days as a supervisor at a wastewater treatment plant. But this time, Jim knew it was much more than stress. I was uh, resting in my bedroom, and all of a sudden I had a crushing pain in my chest, and uh, the pain radiated down the arm, up the side of the neck, couldn't catch my breath. And I called to my daughter, I said, you're going to have to get me to the hospital. I'm not going to make it. A balloon catheter was inserted into his artery. He was stabilized and placed on a heart transplant list. But two days later, Jim flatlined. I could see everyone rushing into the room. I couldn't hear the alarms going off. It's like I had gone underwater. The, the hearing had just, just faded away. That's when I began to pray. I knew I was dying. It wasn't a scare praying. It was earnest to take care of my family. As I prayed, it got darker to the point it went black. Next thing I knew, off in the distance, I saw white light. It was beautiful. Just wasn't blinding, but pure, perfect. As I started getting towards the light, I could see the outer edge of it begin to spiral. And I couldn't figure out what that was, but as I got closer, I could see it was the words of prayers revolving. The words broke off going into the light. And I followed 
into the light. The next thing I felt was being embraced, safe and secure. It felt wonderful. It felt like total love. Next thing I knew, I was looking down the room where my body was. I could see everyone working on me. I could hear what they were saying. There were two nurses outside of the room looking in. One said to the other, why are they working so hard? He's gone. If they do bring him back, it'd be a vegetable. I later on told her what she said. She about passed out. <laughs> then I thought to myself, where's Debbie? And instantly I was in the room where she was. And I've just gotten finished with that prayer. Uh, you know, he's yours, Lord, because I knew that that was the only way you could come back to us. When she did that, I was right in on her face. When I saw her face, I saw every aspect of our life together from the first day we met, our marriage, the birth of our children, all the emotions we've shared. I couldn't believe her. I just couldn't believe her. I cry out to the Lord. I said, Lord, I love you so much. Please let me come back. See, my wife needs me. My children need me so much. Please let me come back. Okay, friends, we're going to pause that one there. Um, that's quite an intense thing to watch, and um, it may be triggering for some around uh, fear of death or... Um, close encounters we have had. And I share this because, um, like I said, I'm not here to say that this is true, even though many people write of a, such an experience, or that it's a hoax, because who would know? Um, and of course, this experience that he's describing is happening under enormous trauma and pain and stimulation. But the, the one word of caution I want to offer here is, um, I, is not to feel resentment of those who have passed, as if they had a choice whether to return or not and chose to not return. Um, I don't think that would be a good conclusion here. Uh, but here, my interest here is how does such an idea that we see here jive with what can be found in Jewish thought? Um, this idea of what, what's described to have been seen or witnessed and, um, and even the idea of going to that realm and back. Now, let me first say, according to Jewish law, there is no such thing as dying and returning. Now, um, in terms of what that means is, death by, by Jewish law is either classified as the cessation of heartbeat or as the death of the brainstem. Taking the more stringent approach of death of the brainstem, the brainstem cannot die and return. When you see in the news every year, someone dies and comes back, that is a, uh, that is a misdiagnosis. It means they misdiagnose death. Death did not happen. Um, the, um, the person, uh, you cannot, your brainstem cannot die, cannot die and then be revived, like, like a cessation of heartbeat can. 
And so um, that's not to say that on the level of a soul, that the soul could have an encounter in a near-death experience. So that's not to discredit the idea of there being some contact, relationship, some sort of transcendental experience that occurs. It just means on the definition of when life ends. And that would have to do with organ donation. When can you donate organs? When the person is officially dead, not when um, they have been diagnosed by a hospital to be dead, uh, which may be a different definition than, than the Jewish definition of death of the brainstem. Okay, so the first source I want to look at here comes from the Talmud. And it's a fascinating story, a fascinating story about Shmuel, Shmuel, um, who, um, uh, there's a, uh, yeah, perfect, perfect, who, who, um, who has an encounter with someone beyond his world. And it's a fascinating story on many levels, but let's just jump right into this first story. Okay, this comes from Bracho in the Talmud. The Gemara cites another proof. They're dealing with stories of the living who are engaging with the deceased. Come and hear, as it is told, they would deposit the money of orphans with Shmuel's father for safekeeping. But when Shmuel's father died, Shmuel was not with him, and he did not learn from him the location of the money. Okay, here's where I love to make an appeal for um, making sure everyone has their estate in place that their children or grandchildren know where their will is or where all their documents are. Um, not only that, but an ethical will, not just about financial keepings, but one has passed on their, their ethical teachings to their children. Because now Shmuel's father dies and he's holding on to the orphan's money and nobody knows where it is, including Shmuel. And so there's a repercussion for him that he doesn't know where his father's kept the money. Since he did not return it, Shmuel was called son of him who consumes the money of orphans. So he is shamed. What has your dad done with this money? This legacy is passed on to you, shamefully. So Shmuel went after his father to the cemetery. And he said to the dead, right? So now he's in the cemetery trying to figure out what's going on. And he says to the dead, so what's just happened? Is he dreaming? Is he having a prophetic moment? Is he calling spirits from another realm down to the earthly realm? Is he transcending the earthly realm to the heavenly realm? What is happening here? And this typically does happen in a cemetery. And he, and he screams out, I want Abba. I want my dad. And the dead said to him, there's many Abbas here. Who are you calling for exactly? I think this is a little bit of Talmudic humor because they must know who he is and who his dad is. But he's like, which Abba do you want? And he told them, I want Abba Bar Abba. I want the, my father, the son of his father. And they said to him, there's many people here called Abba Bar Abba, right? So who do you want? He said, okay, I want Abba Bar Abba, the father of Shmuel. I want my father, the son of his father, the father of me, right? Where is he? Because remember, back in those days, they didn't use last names. A person was called the son of their parents. Um, that's also like, you think Jacobson, the son of Jacob or something, you know? Or like, uh, in my case, Yanklowitz, uh, Witz, Witz in Yiddish means son of, and Yankel is Yaakov. So this, the son of the son of Yaakov, the son of, of the Jewish, basically Yanklowitz means the Jewish people, the son of, of, of Israel. So, so he says, I want, I want my father. And, and, and he says, where is he? They replied, ascend to the yeshiva on high. Now that's all already very interesting. 
What is the heavenly realm? It's the yeshiva on high. It is a study house. What, what is heaven? It's a place where you think about ideas. Okay, that's very interesting. We'll come back to Maimonides. Meanwhile, he saw his friend Levi sitting outside the yeshiva, up in the heavenly realm, away from the rest of the deceased. And he asked him, why are you sitting outside the yeshiva? You should be inside, feeling the light of truth. Why did you not ascend into the yeshiva itself? He replied, because they tell me that for all those years that you didn't enter the yeshiva of Rabbi Afis and thereby upset him, we will not grant you entry to the yeshiva on high. So this is very interesting. Remember the Hollywood version is up there is heaven, down there is hell, right? The good ones up there, the bad ones down there. Here's a very different image, right? Here's an image of that what was the highest joy? It's not chocolate cake. No, no offense to folks here who love chocolate cake. It's not your latte. No offense if you love your latte. It's not like the beach of the beach in Hawaii. You know, nothing against the beach in Hawaii. It's not like uh, fill in the blank of your favorite thing that you love to experience on vacation or food or whatever it is. It is attaching your soul to the highest realm of truth. Being surrounded by the light of truth right, in an intellectual and spiritual realm is what would be a heavenly realm. I know that sounds very cognitive or very intellectual, but that is what um, the heavenly realm is about. It's not just experiential, but it's, it is also, um, it is also um, epistemological. It, it is about what is ultimately good and true. It's about virtue. And there's no, instead of a hell, the guy who didn't spend his life caring about ideas entering the yeshiva, so to speak, he has to sit outside the yeshiva. He gets to see the people passing in and, in and out, but he never gets to go in. It'd be like going to your favorite movie theater and sitting in the hallway, right? Which I had to do a few years ago because one of my kids uh, couldn't handle sitting in there. So they're all in the movie and I'm running around the hallway of the movie theater. Oh, what's going on in there? I can put my ear to the theater, you know, chasing my son down the hallway. So this guy, he's got to sit on the outside. He's the, he's in the, what do you call it in, in preschool? He's in the timeout chair. He's in the timeout, the timeout chair, right? So he replied, because they tell me for all those years, I didn't go to the yeshiva and I upset him. We will not grant you entry to the yeshiva on high. Okay, let's go to the next screen. The story continues in the Talmud. Meanwhile, Shmuel's father came and Shmuel saw that he was crying and laughing. So you remember this idea of being reunited with loved ones? Okay, so Shmuel ascends and he encounters his father in Olam Haba. And he doesn't, it, it's actually interesting. He's crying and he's laughing. So Shmuel says to his father, why are you crying? And his father replied, because you will come here soon. You will come here soon. His father is crying, knowing that his son will die. Now that's interesting because we normally think in this world, you cry for people who die. But in the next world, they welcome you to a place of bliss. Why would they cry? But his father is crying for his inevitable death. Death is still bad. Death is still a problem in the heavenly realm. Shmuel continues and asks, then why are you laughing? And his father replied, because you are extremely important in this world. So he's crying because his son will die, 
but he's laughing because he feels the joy at the virtue of his child in the world. So Shmuel said to him, if I am important, then let them grant my friend Levi entry to the yeshiva. My friend who I just saw there sitting outside, if I have any merit, let him in. Now this is interesting also because we see the idea that people through good deeds in this world can influence the positioning of the deceased in the next world. This is how we understand reciting the mourner's Kaddish, saying the Kaddish is elevating the, the soul. It's an aliyah for the neshama. Giving tzedakah, donating money in one's merit, elevates their soul. And in this case, the guy who's actually ascending while he's alive into the heavenly realm saying, let him in, let him in, let him through the gates on my merits, on my merits. And so it was that they granted Levi entry to the yeshiva. Okay, so in my case, they let me into the movie theater. I don't know what happens to my two-year-old son running in the hallways. I guess there's a babysitter who magically arrives. But in this case, he, they let him into the yeshiva. He's finally allowed in. Okay, last slide here. Shmuel said to his father, Dad, where's the orphan's money? They're going to ruin my life. I'm going to lose my good name if I don't get the orphan's money. Not to mention the orphans need the, orphans need the money. His dad says to him, go and retrieve it from the mill house where you will find the uppermost and the lowermost money is ours. And the money in the middle belongs to the orphans. Okay, so there's like 10 bills at the bottom. I don't know, 10 coins at the bottom. And that's ours. 10 coins in the middle, that's the orphans. And 10 coins up top, that's also ours. So why would he do it like that? Shmuel says to him, why did you do that? He, he, he replies, if the thieves stole our money, they would steal from the money on top first, which they would see first. If the earth swallowed up our money, it would swallow up our money on the bottom. Apparently, the dead in this case, Shmuel's father, know when others will die. And since Shmuel did not die the next day, clearly the angel, Duma, could not have informed them. Okay, so friends, we're going to pause there on this text. So a few conclusions there in the end. Number one, how careful his father is with his tzedakah. He doesn't say, okay, I'll take care of myself first. I'll live the best life I can and have every luxury I can. Oh, I got a few coins left over. I'll give it to the poor. He says, no, no. The money for the, the, my tzedakah, the money that I give to help others, is the one money I take most care of. Okay? I'll worry about how I'm going to feed myself later, how I'm going to take care of other things later. The money that I have to keep the most safe is the money that I mark off for others. That's why I'm going to place it in the middle. So we learn about the virtue of Shmuel's father there, that he cared, he makes sure even before his own well-being, the care of the orphans, of the yatomim. But also, and we see in the conclusion there, that the dead know when the living will die. They are a partner in kind of the omniscience, in the all-knowing experience of who shall live and who shall die, as we do at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur each year, as the Book of Life is opened, and we engage also in, in holidays of Yisker, of remembering the deceased, and as we remember them and hope that their souls will ascend 
we also view it as a partnership, not in reciprocity that we help them and they help us, but in the spirit of love that we help them. And so too, they know when we will die. And they also, as we remember them, they remember us. They are heavenly advocates for us in the next realm as well. You can almost imagine there being a court scene. And in the court scene, there are the people we have hurt who are arguing against us. And they're the people we have helped or people we have loved arguing for us, almost like the angelic and the demonic in debate, right? In debate. And as it says, every time we do a mitzvah in this world, it says in the Midrash, we create a heavenly advocate. We get another lawyer. Now, nothing against lawyers. We don't normally think of lawyers as angels. <laughs> we don't need any lawyer jokes today. But, but in this case, when you do a mitzvah in this world, you create a heavenly angel who is your advocate in the next world, is your lawyer in the next world, helping to defend your case, so to speak. So too, the people you have loved, the people you have loved and who have loved you. Okay, friends, so that is a fascinating Talmudic passage. And in the Talmud, we have many cases similar to this that demonstrate this sense of leaving this world in, and transcending into the next world, conversation or dialogue, and, um, and as such, um, a realm of advocacy um, or engagement one with the next. Okay, now the next thing I wanna do to it together is look at some of the Torah sources. In this case, what I mean by Torah is the five books of Moses, the Hebrew scriptures, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But before we look at those, I want to compare two different ideas that emerge in the realm of how important, once again, is Olam Haba for our life. Okay, and here's two conflicting views. Lakute Maharan, this is Rabbi Nachman, and here's what he says over here. The, this aspect of always being mindful of the world to come, affixing one's thoughts on the world to come, applies in the general and in the particular. In the general, this is how a God-fearing person ought to act. By the way, by God-fearing here, it only partially means this idea that there's a powerful God I should be afraid of. It mostly means yirat shemayim, that I have awe. I have awe, it kind of like, I'm inspired by or amazed by, not just kind of God, a punisher, but God, divine, the magnificent. Right when a person gets up in the morning, before beginning anything at all, they should immediately remind themselves of the world to come. Afterwards, they should do this in the particular. This entire world is an enclosing of the lower levels of holiness the aspect of the feet of holiness as it is written, and the earth is my footstool. Okay, let's pause there. Okay, so friends, what Rabbi Nachman is saying here, olam haba, the heavenly realm, is not just an interesting thought. It should be the center of our consciousness. When we wake up, it's the first thing we should think of. There's an eternal realm, and there's a very short life I, I live here. God forbid, for 20 years, 40 years, hopefully 120 years. But in the scheme of eternity, it is incredibly short. And if we always have in mind that there is an eternal realm, we will live our lives differently. This should be at the center of our consciousness, Rabbi Nachman argues. He also claims here that we would be a fool to think that what the brain knows 
than what the body experiences is true reality. He says, this is the lower level of holiness. Oh, my brain doesn't know anything about the heavenly realm, so it must not exist. My body can't experience it, so it's obviously not there. He said, the real illusion is, is, the, is, the, is the fragility, the, the, the impotence of the human mind and the limitations of the human body. The spiritual realm is where true reality exists, is where that true reality exists. And so I would be a fool to reject that which I don't know or experience because that is merely of the bodily realm. Now here, Rabbi Soloveitchik is going to give the opposite view. The difference between halachic man and religious man is essentially one of orientation. Okay, now what he means by that, halachic man, he means that a Jewish person of tradition, a person who engages in prayer and in study and is concerned with their, their ethical behavior in this world, a person who is very reflective about how they live. And what he's calling religious man is a person who is otherworldly, a person who operates not in the justice and ethics of this world, but in kind of the spiritual realm beyond the human responsibility of this world. And he's, he's committed to halachic man, but he has a respect for religious man. He says they move in opposite directions. Religious man starts from this world and concludes in absolutes in the metaphysical realm. Halachic man begins in, in the supernal realm and concludes in this world. Religious man aspires to ascend from the veil of tears to actuality, to escape the straits of sense ex existence into the divine expanses of transcendental existence, purged and distilled. But halachic man yearns to bring transcendentality into the valley of death of our world and to turn it into the land of life. While religious man throbs with the pining for flight from reality, Halachic man draws the line in the sand of this world and does not leave it. He wishes to purify this world and not to flee it. Flight heralds defeat. Halachic man is possessed of a stiffness of neck, a tremendous stubbornness. He battles the evil and the demonic forces of life and struggles valiantly against the rule of malice and the hosts of wickedness in this world. His mission is directed not towards running away to another world, which is all perfect, but rather to lower that eternal world into ours. Now, once again, in the spirit of pluralism, I want to differentiate just how different Rabbi Nachman's approach and Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach is. One might speak to you more than the other, and I'm not here to argue for one or the other, but for you to cling to the one that speaks to you most. Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying, we don't know anything about what's next, and even if we know something, we need to focus on this world. Every moment, am I being ethical? Every moment, am I helping others? Every moment, am I elevating my soul towards a deeper consciousness within this life? My job is not to leave this world to the heavenly realm, but to bring the heavenly realm to this world. That is to say, tikkun olam, to repair this world. Rather than say, oh, this world is messed up, what can I do? It's all about the next world anyways. No, he says, roll up your sleeves and improve this world. That's your job here. And trust that if you do the best you can here, good things will happen over there. Rabbi Nachman says the opposite. Rabbi Nachman says, all of your consciousness should be on the eternal realm, focused on olam haba. That's where your mind needs to be, ultimately. 
And that, and if you do that, you can trust that you will live a good life because you can't possibly choose to be uh, a murderer, a robber, a stealer, someone who's only consumed with themselves all day if you are, if you are um, aware of the eternal realm. So they go from totally opposite ends. They end in the same place that we should, we should be consumed each day with, with chasing virtue, with study and prayer and helping others and doing all we can, not just to have a fun, a good time, um, but, but nothing wrong with a good time, but that shouldn't be the main pursuit, um, but rather be consumed with, with helping others and, and with virtue. And yet they come from opposite ends. So what we're gonna look at now very briefly is just to show how limited the sources are in the Torah itself around the world to come. And then we're gonna see how that gets extended by the rabbis beyond the, the Torah itself. Now, as we saw Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in our first video said, you have to almost squint to find these. So let me quickly show you some of them. In Genesis, in Bereshit, it's dealing with Yaakov here, Jacob, the third of the patriarchs. It says they had the ornamented tunic taken to their father and they said, we found this. Please examine it. Is it, is it your son's tunic or not? Who are they talking about, of course? Yosef, Joseph, ya Yaakov's son. He recognized it. He said, my son's tunic, a savage beast devoured him. Joseph was torn by a beast. Of course, that didn't happen. That was a great lie. So Jacob rent his clothes as we do when we are mourning. We tear our shirt or is done in liberal circles, rip a ribbon. And they put sackcloth on his, on his loins and they observed mourning for his son many days. Of course, Shiva, seven days. And then the Shloshim, the 30 days of mourning followed by the Avelut, the year of mourning. And all his sons and daughters sought to comfort him, as is the responsibility of family. But he refused to be comforted, saying, no, I will go down mourning to my son in Sheol. Thus, his father bewailed him. Now, what does he say here? This is the underworld. Sheol is the underworld. What in Greek mythology they call Hades. Hades. This is a place of darkness. But here's the interesting thing. It would be a mistake to call it hell. Yes, it's an underworld. Look, he says, I will go down. It's a yerida. It's a descent. It's not an ascent to the heavenly realm. It's a descent to Sheol. And what is this place? It's the place that all people go. He's not saying, I'm a sinner. I'm going down to hell. He's saying, I'm going down to the place that all people go. And in that place, people are separated compartmentally. So this is already a drastic change from the Christian imagery, a big change from the Hollywood imagery that we're used to, that it is a descent and, and everyone is in one place, compartmentally separated. Of course, we shouldn't think of this in the spatial realm of downwards. Downwards is metaphorical because um, we're only dealing with a spiritual dimension here, not a physical dimension. Now, something, something else to say here before we go on. Why does the Torah not talk about this? If it's so clear about Olam Haba, why does the Torah not talk about it? And, and I, think, I think the correct reason is because the Jews, when they're receiving Torah, are emerging out of where? Egyptian slavery. Who do you want to be when you leave slavery of the oppressor? the opposite of the oppressor. What did the oppressor talk about all day and night? 
the eternal realm, eschatology, the heavenly realm. What's the holiest Egyptian book? It's called the Book of the Dead. What is the biggest achievement for the Egyptians? It is the giant tombs that they built, that the, that the Hebrew slaves built, the pyramids. So what do they celebrate? Death. The Egyptians celebrate death because everything is about the next world for the Egyptians. And so the Hebrew, the Hebrew slaves leave and they say, oh, well, of course we believe in that. The Torah makes it clear, but we don't want to focus on that. That's the Egyptians. They will enslave people in this world and believe their souls are safe in the next world. We want to be a life affirming of this world, even though we believe in that next, next realm. That is one of the great Jewish insights into the ancient civilizations that says, yes, we believe in it, but it may not be uh, central, and we certainly should not build societies around it. We should never allow the bulk of our money to go to cemeteries instead of um, places that affirm life rather than mourn the deceased. However, Jonathan Sarna, the great professor of American history, shows the first thing every Jew Jewish community did when they established themselves in any city they moved to in the world was set a cemetery. Even before building a school or a synagogue, it is, it is, imper it is imperative for communities to make sure we can bury the dead. But that's very different. <clears throat> that's very different. In fact, how did Jews bury the dead? In the most modest of ways, not with some fancy tomb or pyramid. You don't bury them in their finest suit or dress, right? We go down in white shrouds, right, with a humble tombstone. And um, after being buried, you know, body being cleansed and cleaned, um, and everyone goes in an egalitarian sense, whether rich or poor, um, whether living virtuously or, or with vice, goes in the same modest way. Okay, let's go to the next source in Genesis. In the interest of time, let's skip the first paragraph and go to the second. Dealing with a similar idea here, their father Jacob said to them, right, this is in the case where they want to take Benjamin down to Egypt. It is always me that you bereave. Joseph is no more and Shimon is no more. And now you would take away Benjamin from me? These things always happen to me. And then Ruvain says to his father, you may kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care and I will return him to you. But he said, my son must not go down with you. I can't lose another son. For his brother is dead and he alone is left. If he meets with disaster on the journey you are taking, you will send my white head down to shoal and grief. I will die and I will go to the underworld. Okay, here we see it again in Numbers, in Bamidbar. In the interest of time, just skip to that third to last line. This is the story of Korach, where the, where the ground opens up and swallows them up for protesting Moshe based on impure motives. And and it swallows them up and the earth closes over them. Like literally, this is like a Hollywood movie. I'm, I'm surprised they haven't made a movie about it yet. They swallows them up and they go into this fiery pit and they go down alive into Sheol, it says there. With all that belonged to them, the earth closed over them and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. Going down, okay? Let's jump back to Genesis in the next slide. Here's a different imagery. We saw three texts already in the Torah that talk about this Sheol, which is the first Hebrew word we have for the next world. Here, when Yaakov is dying, Yaakov is dying, remember the Shema Yisrael. What the Shema Yisrael is, 
They see he's dying and he's afraid about Jewish continuity. And all of his children around his deathbed say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear Yisrael, my father Jacob. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu. We believe in God. We believe in the one God. Don't worry. Even with your death, we will continue your legacy of monotheism, of ethical monotheism. And he responds, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Blessed is the God. And then he can die. Because one of the greatest ways to die, not only is with loved ones around you, of course, but also with them affirming the deepest ethical spiritual legacy that we lived our lives by. So what happens, go, go, to, the, go to the end here, when Yaakov finished his instructions to his children, he drew his feet into the bed and breathing his last breath, it says he was gathered to his people. What an interesting way to talk about the next world. The Hebrew there is Vaye Asef El Amav. Vaye Asef El Amav. He is gathered to his people. Here it doesn't say he's gathered to God. It doesn't say he ascends. It says it's almost a social, a social dimension, a familial dimension. He is gathered to his people. You, this, this aligns with some of these ideas we hear of being welcomed by a loved one who has departed, being welcomed by one's parents who have died, or being welcomed by one's siblings who have passed, being welcomed by a great person, fill in the blank of an angelic person who has lived and died, who would be a kind of a welcoming angel, so to speak. He is gathered to his people. Ve'yasef elamav. Okay, here's the last text we're going to look at from the Torah itself, coming from Devarim, Deuteronomy. We talked about this a little bit last time. It is dealing here again with how the Israelites differentiate themselves from the pagans and from the Egyptians um, who were consumed with trying to engage with the dead. And it says here, let's skip down to the third line down. Let no one be found among you who consigns his son or daughter to the fire. Right? that you kill your children in the name of God, right? sacrifice your children, or one who casts spells, or one who consults ghosts or familiar spirits, or one who inquires of the dead. And there we see the halachic prohibition of doresh el hametim, of requesting help from the dead that we talked about a little bit last time as well. Because the ancient pagans said, if it's all about the next world, then let me kill my children. I'm going to offer my children to the gods so that they can go to this wonderful place now, right? Or I'm going to be a Hamas, I'm going to be a, an extremist terrorist suicide bomber. What a beautiful thing. I want to go to the place of paradise. I'm going to intentionally kill myself so that I can ascend. I can ascend to the true place of, of virgins. Um, and so there are people like that have held such a view um, that really, if I want to be there, not here, then suicide is a great thing. I should kill myself, right? I should get myself there now. I should kill my child, throw my child into the fire. And of course, Jews completely rejected this, this idea that I want to get there faster. Everything you can do to save a life, you do. Virtually everything you can do, almost everything you can do. Pikuach nefesh, to save a life, affirming this world. And so, too, just as we don't kill our children to go there, just as we reject suicide bombings, so, too, we reject the notion 
that my primary source of wisdom or primary support is from someone who has died, who is now going to give me what I need or do for me what I need. Once again, there is an idea that we can be comforted by the deceased. We can engage with the deceased. We can even be in conversation or prayerful relationship with the deceased, but not that they are God, not that they are our helper who I'm going to pray to to save me. We pray to God. Jews don't have intermediaries. You pray only to the one God. You don't pray to your deceased loved one to help you. That's not their role, right? They're there to be a comforting presence. They are there, according to the sources we saw, to greet us or welcome us, but they are not there to be God. Okay, so friends, those are the five sources we're going to look at that show how the Torah itself is looking at this. Now, um, okay, now, now we're going to go to, to two other Talmudic realms before we're going to open up uh, uh, the broader conversation uh, for today. It says here in the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, now here's one of the clearest Talmudic passages. It, this, this comes from the Talmudic tract, Rosh Hashanah 16b to 17a. It has been taught, Beit Shammai says, there will be three groups at Yom Hadin. Normally we call Yom Hadin Rosh Hashanah, the day of judgment, right? But here they're dealing with the, eschat the eschatological realm, the ultimate day of judgment, Yom Hadin. Echat shel tzadikim gamurin. The first one is the, the purely righteous. If you've met people like this, they live their life not shaming others, but lifting up others. They think every day, who can I donate my money to today? They say, who can I volunteer my time to today? They say, oh, what part of me is, is still a vice that I can work on myself today? This is the person who says, I, I, how can I engage in prayer and mitzvot? How can I be more ethical, right? This is the purely righteous. That's the first category. The second, the purely wicked, the purely wicked, the people who say, how can I, how can I make an extra dollar? How can I dupe someone today? How can I basically live my life trying to, 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 to beat someone else, right? I want to, uh, my, my political party is true and the other guys are schmucks, right? I, I, I'm the one who's rich and, and, and the poor ones, it's their fault they're poor. They should have worked harder, right? Right? I should have everything I want, and other people could have had that if they worked harder. Right? It scorns people. It shames people. It looks down on others. I have what I have because I worked hard, and other people didn't. It's all about the self. Right? This is, forget even the category of murderers and of stealers, of thieves, the, that, like the most wicked. The, it's essentially an orientation of self-righteousness. I am good and I have everything that's mine. I have no reason to donate any of my time or money. This is all about me, essentially, right? The wicked. And then the third category, the Benoni, the intermediary category, the people who, okay, I live a lot of my life in self-interest, meal to meal, what's going to taste good, TV show to TV show, what, what do I enjoy? But I, okay, I do give an hour of my time each day to help somebody. I do give 20 bucks each week to help somebody, right? I do try to do something in my life to help others. This is the intermediary category, they say. Three categories, purely righteous, purely wicked, and the average person, so to speak. The thoroughly righteous, the thoroughly righteous will forthwith be inscribed definitively as entitled to everlasting life. Not even a question, olam haba. The righteous, of course, is the God of justice, and those people will be rewarded, the Talmud says. The thoroughly wicked, it says, will forthwith be inscribed definitively as doomed to Gehenna, 
Gehenim, which is in some ways equated with Sheol, as we saw on the Talmud, in other cases equated with hell, what we would call kind of the fiery pits, as it says, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to reproaches and everlasting abhorrence. So once again, in the Hollywood vision, the story would stop there. Good ones, you go up. Bad ones, you go down. But the, but the Talmud says, no, no, those are the purely righteous and the purely wicked. Let's go to the Benonim, the intermediate. The intermediate will go down to Gehenna. They're going to go down to purgatory and squeal in pain and then rise in delight again. As it says, and I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will answer them. Of them too, Hannah said, the Lord kills and makes alive. Bring down to the grave and bring up. Okay, friends, this is quite an intense, uh, let, let, let's stay there for one more moment. Um, this is quite an intense passage. And what we see here is bracketing the purely righteous who ascend and the purely wicked who descend, that the Benonim, the Benonim are in what the Zohar calls engage in a purifying or cleansing experience, a process of purgatory, which is to say most people will live with a lot of mistakes in their lives. They hurt a lot of people. Those same people will also have done good things. They will do themselves a disservice if they only focus on all their mistakes. They will also do themselves a disservice if they focus on all the good things they did. You've probably met people like that, average people who think they're horrible because all they think about are all the regrets. And you've probably met average people who think they're incredibly righteous because all they do is celebrate those good things they did in their life. Right? But in fact, this balanced perspective of, I am a decent person. Yes, I've made a ton of mistakes. Yes, I've done good things. I'm trying to grow. What the, their fate is in the Talmud, their fate is a process of purification, purgatory, Gehenna. It go, the soul goes into a place of fire, fire in order to burn off the sins of the soul, in order to cleanse the soul, so that it can reattach to God. Here's kind of a <laughs> here's kind of a way to think about it. Um, if you've ever met a child who doesn't like to take a bath, <laughs> um, let's just say I have some of those, but I'm going to bracket them because I don't want to bring them into theology here. They are wonderful, pure souls. Um, the child is out playing in the neighborhood, and they're all dirty, and they come to home, and the mother says to them. What have you done? You're all dirty. You can't come into our beautiful house and gets the hose and squirts them down while the kid is crying. There's shampoo in his eyes and, and there's squirting the hose on his head and the kid's naked and embarrassed outside because they're squirting him down, getting, the, getting all the dirt off his body. That is kind of like a, a very strange or almost comical version of what this is. If you want to go home, you got to be clean. You want to walk into the house of your mother you can't walk with your dirty shoes. You want to go back to, to, the, to the heavenly throne, you need to take a shower. And so you're going to go down to the place of purification, of reschooling, of re-cleansing, of re 
in order that you can ascend. You need to get, you need to cleanse the soul. I hope that makes sense what that vision is. So just again, according to the rabbis, purely righteous ascend, purely wicked descend, and the the common person, the common person is um, going to go through this cleansing process. Now, this is also why, friends, that cleansing process is one year long. It's one year long. Now, that's kind of strange because in an eternal realm, how can there be time? How can there be a temporal realm in the eternal realm? Let's bracket that philosophical question and understand that that's mostly about us. What we do in the year when someone has died that we love is we say Kaddish for them. We donate money in their merits. We do good deeds in their merit. We try to improve ourselves in their merit because we are a part of their purification process. And why do we only say Kaddish for 11 months, not 12? The most common explanation in the Midrash is that says it, it, it is a vote of confidence in them. It's a vote of confidence in them that their own merit will carry them in that last month, right? That they can stand on their own in the last month. So we say Kaddish for 11 months, not the full 12 months of, of Gehenna. Of course, the ruling is if somebody had a parent that was purely wicked, they recite Kaddish for the full 12 months. Um, so that, that, that is the case. And there's a lot more to say about that. About, um, and then there's the whole conversation. Does one say Kaddish for a, a totally abusive parent? Let's bracket that conversation also. Okay, here's our last three sources to, to look at today. And um, on this last screen, it says in the Talmud of Shabbat, be fervent in my eulogy, in my hesped, for I will be standing there. Okay, so this is an idea. When does the soul ascend? We might think the soul ascends, like if you saw that video we played earlier around the person who dies and, and, and ascends, you might think the soul leaves as soon as the body dies, but that's not the Jewish thought. The Jewish thought is not that the soul ascends when the body dies. The soul takes a while to leave. And so when we are eulogizing a person before their burial, they are, it's as if they're standing right there listening, right? And that's why there's two goals at, at a burial. The first goal is to comfort the mourners. The second goal is to comfort or elevate the deceased. It says here in Bava Metzia, the Talmudic tractate, the dead communicate with the human realms and the heavenly realms. So almost like a prophet, the realm of a loved one who has passed is to be in conversation with the divine realm and to be in conversation with the heavenly realm, almost like an intermediary. Again, not an intermediary that we pray through, but one who kind of is attached to both realms. And lastly, here in the Midrash, Bar Kapara taught, until three days after death, the soul keeps returning to the grave, thinking that it will go back into the body. But when it sees that the facial features have become disfigured, it departs and abandons it. So friends, as we know in Jewish law, you can do nothing to us. Okay, let's go to gallery mode. You can do, or speaker mode actually. Um, you can do nothing to ascend, excuse me, to, um, to increase the body's return to the earth, increase the speed, nor decrease it. What would, what would slow down the decay of body? It would be mummification. Jews don't do mummification. We don't try to preserve the body. Or it would be speeding up. What would speeding up the process be? It would be, um, uh, what do you call it? Cremation, cremation. 
the, the Jewish approach is natural burial. You put the body into the into the earth, into the earth, or into into wood, into wood which is considered part of the earth. And the idea there is part of the idea that, that the body needs to return to the earth, but also we try to bury as fast as we can because the idea here is the soul cannot ascend until the body is buried, until the body is buried. So here we saw the idea that it takes three days for the, for the soul to ascend um, or sooner if the burial happens the next day or happens two days after the death or happens a third day after the death. And then we see also this idea in the Midrash that the soul has a relationship to the body for the full 12 months after, after passing, that there's still a relationship to that body. Okay, friends, so to conclude here uh, for session two out of three, a little bit of what we've done here is we reminded ourselves of the different theological views of those who claim that the center of our consciousness right when we wake up should be the next life. And those who claim, okay, it's there, but let's not focus on it. Let's focus on this life. We saw that different disagreement between Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Soloveitchik. We saw this video of those who claim to this, who die and experience something. And we did see that this idea can be aligned with Jewish thought, the notion that people in this world can access that and return. We saw that in various forms. Then we looked at Torah sources on the notion of Sheol as, as it extends to Gehenna and why the Jews decided to differentiate themselves from ancient um, uh, Egyptian society, as the Egyptologists will, will show that they were obsessed with this and did cruel things in this world. So uh, we want to be the opposite and not be obsessed with it, but do good things in this world. And then in America, when American Jews see how emph much emphasis that Christians place on belief and belief not only in a certain model of divinity, but belief in the afterlife, that Jews went the opposite way and talked about it very little. Um, and nonetheless, that it is there. And as we saw in the Talmud, that there are these three different categories of human beings. But even in the second category, they will ultimately ascend after a purification process. And also to make more clear, the purely wicked, um, there's also a debate and the mainstream Jewish view is that there is not a realm of eternal damnation. Unlike the Christian belief that there is eternal heavenly reward and eternal punishment and eternal damnation, the belief ultimately is in every person, there is a dimension of soul, which is still good, which still has light. And people will have different degrees of pain of purifying that soul to ascend, but eventually every soul, soul returns home or every spark returns to the bonfire. Um, unlike this idea, because how can there be a just God who would believe in an eternal damnation? Is there no realm of forgiveness? Is there no realm of mercy? Here's the last thing um, I wanna say before we wrap up session two. And yes, in session three, we'll look at things like reincarnation and other theologies. Someone brought up last time the fear of death. And I want to say one thing about the fear of death, uh, actually two or three things. The first thing is that it's natural. It would be very unnatural to not be afraid of death. Yes, there are spiritual gurus out there who claim to have transcended any fear of death. 
but that is very rare. And in our tradition, the greatest of sages were crying when they were dying, knowing that they were full of regret of how they had lived their life in pursuit of fame or of power or of money. Um, even the most righteous people in the Jewish tradition are crying when they're dying, saying, I didn't do enough. That the unrighteous person would not have fear. Say, oh, I'm great. I, what am I afraid of? Of course I'm great. You know, that would be very un-Jewish to be confident that I'm okay, right? Um, but rather to be self-critical. So that's the first thing. It's natural to be afraid. Number two, it is natural to feel like I haven't done enough. That shouldn't be, that shouldn't fill oneself with self-loathing, but should inspire oneself to do and be better. And the last thing, the third thing is, we have rituals geared around fear of death. And the most common one is traditionally reciting the V-Dewey before sleep. It is the confession before going to sleep, saying, God, forgive me. Forgive me for what I did today, right? Um, but the fascinating thing in any traditional prayer book, you'll find this, but say the Shema before sleep and the confession before sleep. It not only asks for forgiveness, we forgive other people who wronged us that day, right? That in asking for forgiveness, we also become people of forgiveness. Forgive me, and so too I forgive the people who wronged me today. The person who robbed me, the person who defamed me, the person who cut me off in the, on the highway, right? Whatever the case is. Um, and then what do we say when waking up? Elohai neshama shenatata bitahorahi. My God, the soul you place in me is pure. And then how does it end? Baruch Hashem, hamachazir neshamot lifgarim metim. My blessed are you, God, who restores souls to dead bodies. Our body dies in our sleep to some degree, and God restores our soul when we, are, when we wake up in the morning. And our first orientation is towards gratitude and service. I'm so grateful to be alive. And because I'm alive, what is my responsibility today? Friends, I try to never go over time, so I'm so sorry I went seven minutes over time. I hope you've, I, while you might have heard some things you disagreed with today or didn't resonate, I hope you heard one thing that in some way resonated or had some insight. I look forward to our third of three sessions next week. We could have a hundred of these, given how much material there is to share, and that's why I'm rushing. So I'm sorry I speak fast, but there's so much to talk about. Wishing everyone a blessed day of comfort and strength and joy. Have a wonderful day.